Please open your copies of God's Word to the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. Prophet Malachi, so just before Matthew and the commencement of the New Testament. So the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi. And we'll read together chapter 1. So we found Matthew, go back a couple of pages and you'll be at Malachi. So Malachi chapter 1. Hear the words of the living God. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation for ever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. A son honoureth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honour? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name. And ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? And now I pray you, Beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same... My name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye have profaned it, in that ye say the table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness it is, and ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed 
be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. Amen. May the Lord bless the public reading of his holy and inerrant word. It is with the Lord's help that we hope to look at verses 1 to 5, and we'll read them again immediately after we have called upon God for help. Let us pray, please. O Lord, we do give thee thanks and praise that we have heard the voice of thy servant Malachi. We thank thee, Lord, for this word of thine, that thou, thou still speakest, O God, to us. Even 2,400 and so years since, the Spirit of God did infill the prophet and to speak these words, and these words that are full of rebuke, uh, but full of glorious truths also. And Lord, as we come to open up this word, we do pray uh, for thee to do that work in our hearts, that the hearts would be receptive to the word of God, the true food for the soul. And Lord, will thou bless it, bless it to us, grant us, O Lord, those humble and sweet, teachable spirits to receive all that the Lord would say to us this evening. And Lord, that it would do us good. Lord, for the, the wounds of a friend are good, and we have no greater friend than thee. And so, Lord, help us, we pray, and grant me thy spirit and an, an unction from above uh, to preach the word of God. Give that help, O Lord, that all things may redound to thy glory. Hear us for Christ's sake and for his everlasting glory. Amen. Amen. If you know anything about the, the, the scriptures of the Old Testament, then you'll know that there were two great uh, captivities. The first captivity for the northern kingdom of Israel, taken away by Assyria into so many different uh, places that were under the Assyrian Empire at the time. And then... Uh, 150, say, years later, we had the Neo-Babylonian Empire coming knocking at the door under King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, roughly about 606 BC. It was the first time he came, and he himself took wave after wave of people. He, he took first, he took the aristocracy and the, uh, and the, 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 the clever, the young, the athletic. He, he took, especially from amongst the aristocracy, uh, some names we know, Daniel, Daniel will know, and his three friends also, but more so. And he came back, and came back and took more. And so Judah was taken into captivity in a foreign land where foreign and false gods were worshipped. And they were kept there for that period of 70 years, according to the prophet uh, Jeremiah. And, but they were, they were enabled by God's mercy to return. According to God's promise, they were returned and they came back and we're not going to go into all of that history, but essentially when they returned, they came and, and they started rebuilding their houses, but the temple of God was not rebuilt. It was still in, in ruins and many parts of the, uh, the, the wall also of Jerusalem were, were broken down, breaches and collapses here and there. And so we come to now the period then after the exile much, but not all, of, of Judah has returned and has established itself once again in the, in the, in the promised land. 
And it is at this time, as they're settling in, that God spoke for the last time through his, a prophet, an Old Testament uh, prophet. He was Malachi. Well, he is the last book in the Old Testament as we have it. The order of the Hebrew Bible is somewhat different, but, but the Christian Old Testament is more of a... Uh, follows the time uh, more chronologically, if I may use that large word. And so Malachi is the last... Uh, prophets, the last one that brought the word of God to the people of God. Not, not quite the last of the Old Testament prophets, but he's the last of the, the Old Testament prophets that we have in the Old Testament. And then God is silent for 400 years. And for the spiritually minded in Israel, that must have been uh, quite a terrifying uh, matter, that the word of God was well, even to use the word that's used in the, in the beginning of Samuel, that the Lord had been silent before Samuel became uh, this prophet, that the word was precious. That is, it was very rare that the word of God, that the Lord God spoke to his people. But here commences at the end of Malachi around 400 years. And then after the 400 years, what do we have? Well, we have, again, the... Well, we have the revealed truth of the, the incarnation and all the matters that happened around the, the conception of, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is actually only, it starts again with the voice of John the Baptist in the Scriptures that God once again throw, spoke through a prophet. A prophet. Now, the name Malachi is made up of two Hebrew words, malach, meaning, meaning messenger, or an angel, it's the same word, and the E at the end, meaning my, so Malachi, in, in, in the Hebrew, Malachi, in English, meaning my messenger, this is my messenger, so my messenger, as it were, ends the revelation of the word of God, and yet that is also a title that is given to John the Baptist, that once again opens up with, with, with the word of God, as a prophet of God, as the, as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, as the Lord Jesus Christ would call him. We see in Malachi 3 and verse 1, you have that open before you. Again, something of the prophecy of John the Baptist. It says, Behold, I will send Malachi. I will send my messenger. It's literally in the Hebrew. And he shall prepare the way before me, saith the Lord. And that brings us all the way then to the other end of this great, this great void of revelation into the New Testament times. That he, again, the Lord would be speaking and so we had this prophet, this Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, declaring that the Lord was coming. He was making the ways straight for the Lord, that the Lord would come. Now this last prophetic word in the Old Testament is, as I mentioned in the prayer, it contains many, many sharp rebukes against the people of God. Many. And we've, we've read the first chapter, we see something of that. And the Lord is, is disputing and he is reasoning with his people on a number of points. And he knows what they've said against him. He quotes them. He quotes them uh, in what their answer would be through the prophet uh, Malachi. And yet this, uh, this last book, uh, this last prophetic word of the Old Testament it begins uh, with a wonderful truth. And that's how the Lord begins this. That the Lord loves his people. He loves his people. 
In fact, the title I've just taken straight from verse 2, the title of this message, I have loved you, saith the Lord. I have loved you, saith the Lord. So let us open together and see what we have here. Firstly, the burden of the prophet. The burden of the prophet we read of in verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So Malachi has been given, firstly, a burden to preach. It is a message that has been given to him as God's servant to preach uh, this word to God, that God has, has put it on his heart. It's laid upon him, and it, it is, in a way, it is as a burden. Not that the Lord is a burden to Malachi, of course not. The Lord is not a burden, but the Lord lays a burden upon him that he must preach this word, that he must go out. Maybe Malachi doesn't want to. I can well imagine that Malachi does not want to go out and say these things to the Word of God because he can well imagine what the reaction could be or would be. That he's not saying things that tickle the ear. He's not saying things that, that encourage in that way, although ultimately they are. If we would take the rebukes of God, we would take them to heart, we would hear what he would say that displeases him and we would do away with them, how sweet that fellowship would then be between us and the Lord, having done away with those things which displease him. He who is holy, therefore, to do away with unholy things. He who is loved, to do away with things of hatred, to do away with things of the flesh, that there would be more things that are glorifying to our God. And so we do see that he has a burden. He must say it. God, uh, not God... Paul was saying that, 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 that it would be woe unto him if he preached not the gospel, that he, Paul, knew something of that burden to, to, to preach that word, to receive that word from God and realize that he had to say it even though he would not say it, even though there was fear and trembling that he would come forth and speak to people. He knew that some would react badly and hopefully some would react well, humanly speaking. And so this is a burden that the Lord has laid upon him, not just laid it on his mind, but on his soul, upon his heart, that he must preach it in spite of his, maybe his unwillingness, maybe his fear, and in spite of what the people of God would take him for. Because we see here there are many rebukes, and we won't go through them one by one today, but I hope in the Lord's will that we will in the coming weeks. But we see the burden to preach but secondly, we see the burden of God's love. The burden of God's love. Because this message that comes from the Lord, again, full of rebukes, full of, of as it were, lifting up the, the, the covers of, of self-righteousness and, and, and false religion or broken religion. All of this is done, as he says at the very beginning of the word itself, I have loved you, saith the Lord. This is, this, is, this is the burden of God's love that speaks love in truth. It speaks the love in truth, even though many did not want to hear it and, and would not hear it. And it is very possible that it is the reaction of the nation to Malachi that the Lord was silent for 400 years and would not speak because they would not receive his word. 
And yet the word goes forth in love, in a, in a holy desire that every one of his people would hear it, and yet they did not receive it. And yet in here we have many promises throughout uh, these, uh, these chapters of Malachi as a short book, and yet so much about what would yet come after that period of silence, that period of judgment, that period of rebuke, when the word of God was not merely precious here and there heard, it was absolutely silent. But it would teach the people of God this, to feast on the 39 books that they had, to feast upon them, to see that it is indeed, using the other term, the other use of that word precious, that these words of God are precious. The Lord has stopped speaking audibly, and yet he has given us the word, that the, the word was, uh, was, was kept in the people of God. To them were given the oracles of God, and they had the word of God. And we know when we come to the New Testament period that there were, there were godly saints there. There was the Simeon. There were others uh, who, were, who loved the Word of God, who feasted upon the Word of God. And even though the revelation, the audible revelation through prophets had ceased, and yet they would be forced back to what the Lord had already given them. And then reading and, and studying and, and believing and, and checking Scripture with Scripture to try to understand, is that promise really for me? Is, how do I understand this? And this is what they were forced to do. Now, in some ways, that's the same situation for the New Testament church after the completion of the New Testament canon. There are no more prophets. There are no more apostles with a prophetic gift. When, when that which is perfect has been perfected, that is the Word of God, then all those, all those gifts were to cease. They were no longer needed. They were an interim uh, and a powerful interim solution until God's revelation was completed with the book of Revelation. And then now we, as the people of God, are again in the same way forced, and we should be forced, although many, many of those in the professing church are, unsat are dissatisfied with the Word of God, and again going to those that say they have a prophetic gift and would speak the Word of God, but they are liars and deceivers, and no doubt also deceived. But the Word of God is perfect, it's completed. And that's what we have, and we are therefore to embrace all 66 books of the Bible. As those who are listening to the prophecy of Malachi, or even in earlier days listening to the prophecies of Isaiah, they were to receive them and not to harden the heart, not to make their ears dull and their eyes heavy and just close themselves off from the Word of God, which is what many did in the time of Isaiah so that nobody believed their report, his preaching. And so this is what we have with Malachi. It's the word of God that comes forth to the people of God, but listen keenly, although there are rebukes and they do not feel nice, and they come and they, they really poke holes in, in, our, in, our, in our coverings and in our masks and in, in whom we think we are, and that God says, no, I know you better than you know you. It's not quite as good as you think. In fact, it's terrible, but I am good and I love you. And a good and loving God spoke to his people, then speaks to us uh, this evening, 
And the prophet is given the burden of God's love to his people. And sometimes it is a tough love. Often it is a tough love. Just as the child has got a, has got, has got a growth or something, and a painful growth, and they, they've wrapped it up in a bandage, and they're walking around with it, and they're, they're holding it, and then the parent might say, come on, show me your arm, and, and they're, they're, they're pulling back. No, because they're afraid of it hurting. They're, they're afraid of, 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 of the, the, the moisture of the wound, or so, you know, being ripped with the, with the bandage, and they're thinking of more pain. But if it doesn't get dealt with by mom or dad, then it's just going to be worse and worse. A foul wound and, and a pus-filled sore would, would be the, 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 the following stage, and then who knows what else, even to the removal of the arm or the loss of life. And so and the Lord, as it were, says, come, show me the wound, show me the pain, show me what is, what is wrong. And then we will quite instinctively pull back and, and, and say no, but the Lord must examine it, must open it up. And so in faith, we, we give the Lord our arm and He unwraps the bandage and he sees the terrible wound and he starts to work on it. And does that hurt? Oh, yes, it does. But it's good. It's good that he comes to cut away that which is rotting, that which is diseased, that which is painful, so that it will heal. And that's just a picture of our soul before the God who created that soul. And as he speaks to us through the prophet Malachi, even this evening, he given a burden to preach and the burden of God's love, sometimes a tough love, a love that speaks the truth even though many of the people did not want to hear it. And the question is, why did they not want to hear it? Why did they not want to hear uh, of the love of God? Because that love of God includes a rebuke from God and a series of rebukes. But God is wise. God knows all things. God understands all things. He even knows the deceit wherewith we deceive ourselves and we have been deceived by others. And whatever blind spots that we have, the Lord knows it all. And therefore, it is oh so safe, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, to come under the rebuke of the Lord and to receive it, that the Lord's word would be that surgeon's scalpel to do that blessed work within us. For he's not out to destroy us. He's not out for our bad. He wants our good. And he will do good. Your soul and your body and your heart is absolutely safe in the hand of the Lord that says, I have loved you, saith the Lord. I have loved you. So we see the burden of the prophet. Secondly, let us open up more something of the love of God uh, to his people where he says, I have loved you. I have loved you. And this is not a past tense, is I have loved you, but I don't love you anymore. What the Lord is saying is, I have loved you. My love towards you has been of long time. A long love. Whereby we understand a few things. We know that the love of God towards his people is a covenanted love. It's a love that is couched in promises. That the Lord has promised this love. And all those aspects in that promise that the Lord then keeps that covenant. Thank God, literally thank the Lord that he keeps his covenant because we don't. 
because we are covenant breakers by nature. And how can I say that? Because our nature is based upon the breaking of a covenant. The covenant of life or the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden by our first forefather. Adam broke it and has given us such a, a sinful heart that when we were born we were the sons of fallen Adam. Not perfect and sinless Adam, but the sons and daughters of fallen Adam. And as he was a covenant breaker, so are we. Who has not broken a promise? Who has not made an oath and not kept it? And so we could continue. But it pleased God to settle his love upon his people and to frame that in the written word. So it's not that we're hoping that we can remember what our, what our father said to us and what his father said to him. And going back many thousands of years, when the Lord spoke that promise, the Lord made sure that these, this promise, this great covenantal promise, with all, its, its, all of its promises that are in there, that it was written down that we would have it before us. Sweet promises. Made by the Lord, fulfilled by the Lord. And these promises of love and this declaration of God's love towards his people is not based upon you. It's not based upon your ability. It's not based upon your ability to obtain those promises or to claim those promises because you cannot and I cannot in and of myself, in and of yourself. But we have someone who did. We have the Savior we have the Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled on your behalf, my behalf, every single condition of every single promise that the Lord made and called this collection of promises and plans, calling it a covenant, the covenant of grace, a gracious covenant, a gracious covenant given to those who deserve nothing good, but this covenant is full of good things, of sweet things, of rich things. Christ fulfilled every, every condition needed, including in him sending his spirit and most often through the preaching of his word to convict you and to convert you, to give you that gift of faith and causing you to repent of your sin. Christ has fulfilled it. If we're, if we're looking for that spirituality within ourselves, th then we will be very disappointed, and God is very disappointed. But, but yet he comes with his Son, he comes by his grace, he comes with the power of his Spirit, and works it that those that hated him by nature would learn to reciprocate on his love. It's a covenanted love, and it's, it's written down, and we can read about these, these promises. It's not that anybody has any special revelation outside of the 66 books, because they don't. We all receive for our benefit, and dreadfully so when we are disobedient towards them, uh, for our judgment. But we have these 66 books, this book of the covenant, of the promises of God's love uh, towards us and how God has achieved that love and how his son died to pay for our sins that we would be set free to receive the sweet love of God. It's a covenanted love.
Secondly, it's an everlasting love. It's an everlasting love. It's a love that had no beginning and will have no end. It has, for our own experience, it has a beginning as the Lord opens our heart to, to hear the gospel and to, to, and, and to receive hope and to embrace the gospel and, 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 and to repent and to, to look unto Jesus. For us, in, in time, it, it has a beginning, but the Lord says that it is an eternal love. And he says that through the prophet Jeremiah 31 and verse 3. A wonderful truth. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. It is because the Lord has loved his people with an everlasting love, an eternal love. So this is pointing to a time before time. Before anything was created, before there was space to put the stuff created. Before the Lord said, in the beginning, which for us is the beginning of time, matter, and space, the existence of, of, of all things, including the angels, would be after that moment, once God had created the heavens where the angels would go and, and he's forming the earth for where his people would go. Before then, in all eternity, there was an, a love toward his people. Before they were created... And therefore we understand this. And the reason why God's love towards his people is an eternal love is because he is eternal. And he never changes. So the astounding truth is that God has always loved his people. Even though he, there's a time, well there wasn't a time because God's eternal, how this difficult this is to understand as creatures of time. But God created time and matter in its place and the whole of history has gone ahead and we see the promises, we see the work of Christ and the gospel goes out to the Great Commission and comes to heathens like us and we hear it in the spirit of the same Jesus, the same eternal Son of God starts working in our heart and, and taking the message, the word of God, the covenantal word of God and, and, and making it to be alive within us so that we would feel, as it were, the first kiss of the everlasting love of God toward us. He's always loved you. Before you existed, before you were conceived, before you uh, first blasphemed against him, before you sinned against your parents, before any of things, these things happened, God loved you from all eternity and has he is from everlasting to everlasting. How glorious it is to know that his love towards you is also from everlasting to everlasting. An everlasting love to his own people. An everlasting love. We could continue and say it is an undeserved love. It's an undeserved love. But we go on to see that it's also a disbelieved love. It is true when we consider these truths, we, we can be overwhelmed. 
We can be overwhelmed that this eternal, self-existent, perfect God, this Father, Son, and Holy Ghost existing in that love within the one Godhead and the three persons of the Godhead, loving each other, rejoicing in each other, having that perfect fellowship with each other, and and having an eternal mind for creatures of dust and ashes and to have their love to him. The Lord didn't need to express his love outside of himself. He has no need of us. But the love of God is so great that he desires to love. He desires to love. And yet we see here then a disbelieved love because we read in verse 2, I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? And here's the answer that the people give, a, a, a word of unbelief. How? In what can we then see and understand to accept this word from the prophet Malachi who preaches that God loves us? And then the answer is, wherein hast thou loved us? In what way, if we understand that use of wherein? In what way? How do we understand that the love of God has been granted to us? Well, I say firstly then, this is an answer of unbelief. It is a question of unbelief that they don't realize the privilege of their position as the people of God. And there is just pure, if I want to use that word, impure unbelief. The unbelief they had to hear the fact that God loves them, they don't believe that God loves them. Why would they not believe that God loves them? Guilt. A guilty conscience could not admit that God would love them because they know that God must have something against them. Because they know they're guilty. So they're not believing in the Lord for the redemption of their souls and the cleansing of their, and the cleansing of their hearts. They're not trusting, they're not looking unto God for that. And saying, yeah, you say that God loves us. But they don't believe that he loves them. Again, because of a a guilty conscience, but just downright ignorance of the Scriptures. If they have not studied and known the Scriptures, if they have not obeyed the Scriptures, if they have not caused their heart uh, to be humble within themselves before the Word of God, and they have ignored it, or it's just been part of a religion, and all of a sudden this preacher comes along called Malachi and says, God has loved you. They don't understand. Why do they not understand the love of God? Or maybe because they're also legalists. Because they think, I've got to do this, and I've got to do that. And if I don't do this, and I don't do that, then I haven't earned the love of God. And, and they're, well enough, they're well aware enough of their own failings to think, well, no, I haven't deserved the love of God. I, I haven't done this, or I haven't experienced this, or I, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't memorized all 38 books of the Bible before Malachi starts preaching in their time. I think, yeah, it's, uh, God can only love me when I've done this and when I've done the other. And once I've done all these things, then I think I'm, I'm, then God could love me. And again, that comes back to unbelief in the fact that God is gracious, that God has said and, and preached the gospel in so many different ways through so many different prophets. And he's very clear in the law that those that break the law come under the condemnation of the law, under the wrath of God. 
And yet he keeps on saying to his people, turn, turn, New Testament language, repent, repent. Turn away from your sin and your self-righteousness. Stop looking at the temple, but look at me, the Lord says. Look unto me. And so they're looking at themselves. They're trying to find value in themselves as opposed to looking unto God that says, I have loved you. I think there's an aspect of this, not only those aspects of unbelief and guilt and legalism, but ingratitude. There's an ingratitude here, what the Lord has done for his people. Here then, as I mentioned in the introduction, so the people were taken away by the Neo-Babylonians, by Nebuchadnezzar, and they, they were... They were in captivity in a foreign language, with a foreign land with foreign languages and foreign gods. And yet, after 70 years, a mere 70 years, two, two generations, they're brought back. And the Lord helps them, sending, uh, sending wise, uh, wise men, Nehemiah, uh, sending godly scribes like Ezra, uh, sending others to help and to encourage, sending prophets to speak the word of God. And so that the walls were rebuilt and the temple was rebuilt, etc. And having understood, even within the, their generation, the generation of their parents or grandparents, the mercy of God towards them to bring them out of that godless place and back home, and yet they can't see the hand of a loving God in that. They don't see, they don't want to see that there is the love of God towards them, and undeservedly so. And yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? So easy that we would fall into the same, uh, the same trap as they. Doubting the love of God, not seeing the love of God. And the love of God that we have, again, is, is not merely the stirring of emotion, although how sweet it is when the Lord comes nigh with his presence but the love and the mercy and God, of God towards you in all that he has granted you. Uh, life and health and, and education, how much of that he has given. It's not that we have to be super strong and healthy you know, and, 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 and uh, competing in the Olympics until we're 80 years of age and that we have a bank account that, 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 uh, that would put Bill Gates to shame and, and we don't have to have everything of everything before we can say, oh yeah, God really loves me because the Lord knows that we must be kept humble. We must be made to be humble. But he gives us that measure of health, he gives us that measure of education, that measure of success, uh, that measure of whatever it is, that we would realize this, that we deserve nothing, and that we would be grateful for every crumb of mercy that we get from the Lord. The burden of the prophets and the love of God to his people. And thirdly, the electing love that divides, the electing love that divides because the answer continues from the Lord in his rebuking the people who say wherein hast thou loved us and here is an answer from God he says was not Esau Jacob's brother saith the Lord yet I loved Jacob and I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. What we hear, we have here a picture of sovereign election. He's coming now and he's picturing one family and he's saying there are two boys and one he chose for good and the other he chose to leave him in his sins. 
Not based on any merit in Jacob, because we know Jacob. If you know your Old Testament, you know that Jacob was a deceiver. And the Lord caused Jacob to be deceived in due course in his life. But not on any merit did, did, did the Lord choose Jacob over Esau. And when we get into chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, and, and Paul takes this up again and, and starts speaking about this truth that there was Esau and there was Jacob, and yet God chose one. God's love, we see here when he says that he loved Jacob. It's, it's a love that draws Jacob. And then we understand it in, in, in this Old Testament context, all that were descended from Jacob, all being of the people of God. And yet he says, uh, and he says for, but for Esau he hated and what is that hate then? Well, again, that's, that's a sovereign lead, leaving in sin. Because he certainly blessed Esau. He blessed Esau mightily. And he blessed the offspring of Esau mightily. So that there was a great southern kingdom there in Edom. And these many mighty princes establishing Esau's progeny. And they were blessed and they were, they were, they were rich. And for many, many centuries, many... Many centuries, they were a rich nation. And their name continued. As you know that Edom is a nickname for Esau. Edom means ruddy, means red. So red-haired or red-faced in some way. And so, so, so much so that even all the way from, say, 2000 BC is when we're talking about now, for 2000 years until the Romans take over, then they, they, they still call that whole area the, 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 the land of Edom, which in Latin is Idumea. They still called it. So, so, so the, the mercies and the kindness of God to Edom and to his progeny are still there, even though they're great rebellions, rebellious people against him, as we see in verses 3 and 4. But it is a picture of sovereign election that we had two people. Neither of them are good. And yet God made that difference. God had that love that would draw Jacob to himself and he had that righteous and holy hate against Esau and his godlessness. It's God that made the difference. It wasn't, it wasn't Jacob, it wasn't Esau that made any difference. They were both dead in trespasses and sins. They were both sinners and death was written up for them. But God made the difference. God made that sweet difference. And what he's saying now through the prophet Malachi to the, to the descendants of Jacob, saying, if we go back through your family tree, you say, wherein hast thou loved us? I chose your father, Jacob. I chose that you would have a godly heritage, that the, you would be in a place where the word of God and the worship of God would become your lot and your privilege. And they say, wherein hast thou loved us? That the God of heaven and earth has revealed himself to your mind, to your life, to your experience. That you're brought up in a family that had access to the word of God. You could go up to the temple. You could see these pictures of Christ. You could see the sacrifices in your place. And your sins being paid for. And you being forgiven. And you say, wherein hast thou loved us? I rejected Esau. I hated him, and yet loved Jacob. And that's what we understand when we consider the, the electing love of God. 
What is there in you that God would cause you uh, to be saved? Nothing. Nothing. And what is there in someone else who is unsaved and remains unsaved? Nothing. God does you no favors by saving you and does them no wrong by not saving them. For all have sinned and come short to the glory of God. All hate God. The miracle is that God decided to love Jacob. I want to say it's not a miracle, but the wonderful thing is, the truth is, the amazing, the astounding truth is that God would decide to love anyone because he is love and he is light and he is truth and we are far from those three things. And we could continue on this, but we won't be understand enough that the Lord made that choice. He chose, he elected for love and left, the other, left Esau in his sin. He did not draw Esau to himself. He did not cause Esau to repent. He did not cause Esau and Edom to have a godly heritage. And God is righteous in all his ways and in all his works. Fourthly, the building upon forsaken foundations. So we've seen the burden of the prophet, the love of God to his people, the electing love that divides. And fourthly, the building upon forsaken foundations. We see that in verse, verse 4. Although it leads on from verse 3. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of two names. He then gives to what the people will say, the people around will say, the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. So as I said, Edom is Esau. When he speaks of one, he speaks of the other. And Edom is the land of the, which Esau settled. And receive many great blessings of God. And we think blessings of God mean the love of God, then we're going to be easily confused. Because we have an impoverished and a sick saint who was deeply and richly loved of God, Lazarus the beggar. Had nothing, and yet consider the rich man had all the blessings of God. And if you were to listen to health and wealth preachers, we know who was loved of God. It was the rich man and Lazarus who was, who was unbelieving. If only Lazarus believed, he would have the, the wealth and the health and everything. Rubbish, a lie from the devil. The riches offered in Christ are not earthly riches, although God will bless whom he will and how he will. It's the spiritual riches in Jesus Christ. Lazarus believed and he was saved and taken to the bosom of Abraham. Whereas the rich man, who had all things as far as the world was concerned, opened his eyes in hell. That's what we see with Esau. Esau is unrepentant. The Lord has dealt with Edom. The Lord has dealt with Esau's Descendants, He has blessed them greatly, as I've already mentioned, but they were idolaters, and they were unfriendly to the people of God. They hated God's people. 
In fact, there were times, and I'm not going to go into the great detail, but that they joined forces, they made alliance with other godless nations to attack and destroy, for which they had an extra judgment from God for doing so, for going against their own cousins, for wanting to destroy their own cousins, their own brothers. And so the Lord, having dealt harshly with them, having humbled them, yeah, because it says in verse 3, and he laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness, whereas Edom saith, Edom unrepentant, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. He has received a humbling judgment, but he is not humbled by it. They are not humbled by the hand of God heavy upon them. They are proud still. We we will return. We will build the desolate places. The boasting. The boasting of their own ability. And they're not humbled. And what do we see? This this Edom, this this cousin, this brother to to the people of God is boasting in his own flesh. He's boasting in his own ability Works of self-righteousness, self-aggrandizement, what I have been able to do in the past, although the Lord's taken it away, quite clearly knowing that it is the judgment of the Lord, and yet coming back and continuing the boasting. Self-righteousness, a graceless religion, something of the legalists we were considering just before but making their own religion. Not a religion according, according to the revealed word of God, but their own religion. So Esau is unrepentant, but we also see that God's curse is unabated. God's curse has not been removed. It hasn't been removed because they've decided, well, we're going we're gonna to pull up our bootstraps, we're going to put our braces on, we're going to roll up our sleeves, and we're, we're going to work, and, and God blesseth the hard worker, doesn't he? No, but they're in direct rebellion against God. And so God's curse is unabated because he says, they shall build, but I will throw down. What they build up and they work hard for, the Lord will curse and destroy. Because all things work together for evil for them who are against God and who hate God. And that's what we see here. God's indignation is forever against his enemies. And he says, they shall call them the border of witness, of wickedness. So in other words, that country, if they were to go over the border into Edom, they would know there was wickedness there. The sons and daughters of Belial would be there. That there would be idolatry and wickedness and sodomy and lies and, and all sorts of corruptness. But the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever... And this is a picture of eternal punishment that we have for those who are of Esau. There is no peace, there is no payment, there is no reconciliation, there is no repentance, there is no love. But the hate and righteous hate of God towards them and against them. So the burden that the prophet, the love of God to his people, the electing love that divides, the building upon forsaken foundations, and brings us fifthly and finally, 
to the eyes looking unto Jesus. To the eyes looking unto Jesus. And we see in verse 5 then, And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. Comparing two borders, comparing two lands, two kingdoms, two states before God, the chosen, the non-chosen, the elect, the unelect, those that are loved and those that are hated. The eyes looking unto Jesus. But this is what we see here. It says, it's, it says, I have loved you, saith the Lord. And verse 5, and your eyes shall see. So those who are the object of God's eternal and sweet love will see and understand a number of things. But firstly, these are the eyes of the redeemed. We say this is all the people of God. Yes, in general, because the word and the promise and the truth goes out to all the people of God. And yet we know that not all Israel is Israel. So within the whole people of God, there are those within the people of God who truly believe who are truly saved, to whom the love is applied, to whom the love or by whom the love is received, to whom the love is given. So we understand that the eyes of the redeemed then, that that your eyes, it says, and your eyes shall see that these are personal witnesses of God's mercy, these people. God's mercy and God's love has been given to them, has been applied to them most personally. Yes, we've talked about that broader application, but to those that will see and understand. But also the glory of God's judgment is something that they will behold. And that's very very much within the context of what we're reading here. It says, "I I chose your father, Jacob, I loved him and I hated Esau. See, Esau does not have any gospel blessings. Esau is like Israel. Esau, we we could use Israel, the northern kingdom, I mean. The northern kingdom turned its back by the work of Jeroboam, who they chose to be king above the son of Solomon. And he led them into into a, a... a half-breed religion. They had the names of Jehovah. They had, they had the idea of sacrificial system. They had a, a priesthood, but it wasn't of the Levites. And they had so many things that, that copied true, uh, true religion. Half-pagan, half-Jewish. And there was never revival in the northern kingdom. They were left to their idolatry. They were left to their false worship. Very much a picture of Rome. But then we have the brethren who left the family and went off to do their... I'm talking about Esau now. And went off and did their own thing and adopted the the Baal worship of of the other nations and, and lived everything against God. And there was no revelation of true religion ever given. No true revelation ever given. That is hate. That the Lord would not reveal the love 
of himself, the love of Jesus Christ, the love of the gospel to them. And yet to the people of God, they are given it. Whether they receive it is another matter, but within their realms there are those that would receive it, as I've mentioned already. And those that receive it would understand that they deserved nothing of God, that Jacob did not deserve to be elect, that they do not deserve to be the true church of Christ. And then they understand what the Lord is saying about their brother Esau, that there is a righteous judgment against his enemies. A righteous judgment against them to the glory of God. To the glory of God. And the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. And there's another comment that we could make when we consider that the Lord being magnified from the border of Israel points very much to the Great Commission as the, as the, as the word of the gospel goes forth and it's, it's done its work in Jerusalem and in Judea and it goes forth even into Samaria, into the northern kingdom, the remnants thereof, and to all four corners of the world that the word is going forth and your eyes shall see, even thinking of eternal truths that the people of God will yet see and understand in the time of eternity, of the time of eternal glory, that we will yet understand and see that the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel, that the gospel goes out to the Jew and to the Gentile, wherever they are, and that we could say that we have seen the gospel light here. And having seen the gospel light, what are we drawn into? What are we called into? Not just the kingdom of Christ, but into the people of God. And having the same responsibilities, the same personal responsibilities as well, having the great blessings of being in the people of God. But remember this, that in the people of God, in the family of Isaac, that little church... There was a division there. So not because Esau was a, a covenant child of, of Isaac was he chosen, no. But he had the responsibility to hear and obey the word of God. And he chose not to. Will you be therefore a believing Jacob or an unbelieving Esau? Now you may say everything that we've just read this evening, preacher, would, would show to me that God is sovereignly uh, above all things when it comes to election and choosing those that will be saved and those that will be unsaved. And therefore, I, if I'm elect unto salvation or I'm elect unto destruction, I cannot change that. And that's, that's true. That's true. But that's not the whole story. That is not the whole story. God has determined that through the preaching of the gospel and the command and the call of the gospel and even this gospel message that we see here in the beginning of Malachi that these are the means whereby the sinner shall be saved. As he brings the, the truth that the Lord loves them, that the Lord made a division, but Esau stayed in his sin and did not repent and so is now written up to eternal destruction. And you're no doubt... As with Moab, there may be ones and twos that came back and were able to call uh, Naomi's God, her God, we consider Ruth. But God has given the means whereby a sinner can be saved. 
hasn't brought you under the, the, the first and primary reason for the preaching of the gospel is for your salvation, is for your benefit. And when you have rejected the gospel call and command, you have not repented, you have not believed, you have not looked with hopeful and believing eyes unto Jesus, then it will be a word of judgment. It doesn't go out first as a word of frustration and a word of judgment. No. That's contrary to the Scriptures. It goes out forth as good news. But sinner, you reject it. It does become bad news. And it's God's means to say this, that you are saved when you repent and believe. And you are guilty when you refuse to repent and believe. The onus is on you. The burden is upon you. It's the burden of the prophet or the preacher to say this truth. But the burden now comes upon you because I've not used difficult theological language to make this very clear. Even the youngest can understand. I trust. Through the preaching of the word, by sending forth preachers by sending forth the gospel throughout the world, the Lord is desirous to be magnified in your humbling yourself before him and being saved by his Son. That is the desire of the gospel. But if you harden your heart like Pharaoh hardened his heart, he will also be glorified in your judgment and eternal destruction. Now, if that leaves you all passive and all panic-ridden uh, all panic ridden and think, well, what can I do? Well, the answer is nothing, but I know a Savior who can. And that you should call upon the name of the Lord, and thou shalt be saved. You call upon him. Let's do so in prayer now as we close the preaching of the Lord's word. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we confess the truth of thy word that no one is saved because of their own efforts no one is saved because we desire to be saved by the gospel and no one is saved without thine electing and saving work because thou must receive all the glory for it is thy plan and thy purpose it is thy son who hung on that cross it is thy desire to send gospel preachers throughout the world to every corner, that everybody would hear, that everyone would bow the knee before Christ. They would confess their sins and call upon God and call upon Christ for that help that they need. And yet these things are not said, the truths of election are not said to prevent us from obeying. But Lord, may they be the drawing of God that we would gladly obey, that we would know our need that we would call upon thy name. And so, Lord, we pray. We pray on behalf of those who find it difficult to pray. May it please thee, O Lord, to have mercy upon their souls, to cause them to repent, turning away in disgust at those things that offend God and cause thy wrath and believe on the only Savior that God has given. Lord, that they may receive that gift, that Christ's kingdom will be filled even more, 
and that the mercy and the love and the salvation of God will be glorified for eternity by these newly saved souls. Lord, hear this word and have mercy, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.